The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world and just ahead on the program. It's the mother of all economic reports, the unemployment report coming out. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. Two interesting chapters of China's upcoming Communist Party Congress. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London for the World Aviation Festival in Amsterdam. CEOs will be speaking to Bloomberg. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. This midterm election is unusually hard to poll. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with a look ahead to the coming jobs report. And joining me for more, Bloomberg reporter Matt Bosler. Matt, in the introduction, I call it the mother of all economic reports. Is it still, or are we uh, firmly focused on inflation reports instead of the jobs report these days? Well, it's definitely competing a lot more with inflation these days, but I would say it probably still is the mother of all economic reports. It's pretty critical over the next uh, several months and into the next year uh, for determining the trajectory for the Federal Reserve and therefore for financial markets more broadly. Yeah, and a big component of that is if the jobs market is strong, the wages, companies are paying their workers more, and that feeds into the whole inflation picture, right? That's the thing. We have very high inflation right now. It's, it's north of 8%. It's the highest in four decades. But a lot of that is presumed to be due to supply chain problems, supply side factors that are expected to dissipate and resolve over the next several months and into next year. So the big question is, once all of that stuff goes away, what is sort of the underlying rate of inflation? Setting all of that aside, economists and forecasters, policymakers at the Federal Reserve, for example, tend to think that wage growth is really the underlying factor uh, that determines where inflation is headed. And so wage growth is still very high right now at around 6%. And so Fed officials are really looking to, for you know that to moderate in order to feel more confident that inflation is going to come all the way back down to 2% once those supply side facts uh, take care of themselves. Okay, so how strong is the labor market in the U.S., and are there going to be signs of uh, some cracks in the labor market going forward, especially with this uh, coming report? You know, the labor market is just looking incredibly strong right now, and it's a bit of a puzzle for economists who would have expected to see more softening there as the Fed has raised rates uh, over the last six months. You know, we just got the latest reading on initial jobless claims on Thursday, uh, for last week, it fell, uh, you know, weekly initial claims fell below 200,000 again uh, for the first time in several months. They're now near the lowest levels of this 
uh, expansion. Yeah, so that far was you know that's that's one of these good news bad news scenarios. You get a really good uh, labor market report, and then stocks you know sort of go off a cliff. So it's that's what we're contending with. Explain that to everybody why that happens. Well, I mean, that really speaks to where we're at right now with Federal Reserve policy. You know, the Fed is looking for the economy to soften. It's not softening, which means they're probably going to be inclined to raise interest rates even higher than they're already saying, which is, you know, quite high already. So the question is, does the Federal Reserve, it has a dual mandate, by the way, as everybody knows, uh, Price control, uh, price pressures, easing price pressures, uh, lowering the rate of inflation, and full employment. So, do they have with that ma- uh, dual mandate? Do they have to torpedo the labor market to bring prices down? This is the really interesting thing because you know they're projecting a higher unemployment rate next year. They see it rising to four point four percent at the end of next year from the current levels around three point seven percent, and they think that's necessary to bring inflation down. They need to see some softening in the labor market to moderate that wage growth and then to bring inflation down. So, you know, you kind of scratch your head. Is that really consistent with their full employment mandate? What they say is that price stability is a precursor to full employment. And so that's kind of how they square that circle that, you know, we need to get inflation down because that will set the stage for um, a healthy labor market over the longer run. Now, that's a contested notion, but that's what they're saying at the moment. So what's the prediction right now from economists ahead of the release of the report? So economists expect the unemployment rate to stay unchanged at 3.7% in September from last month. The other big number to watch is labor force participation. That was 62.4% last month, but it ticked up quite a bit from the month before. And that's something that we've really been waiting to see and hadn't really seen until just last month. If that continues, That's going to be really important because that's one way that, um, you know, some of that labor supply could return and take some pressure off of wages and prices without necessarily having to see, um, you know, weaker labor demand. Uh, So that's a big one to watch for sure. Okay. The Federal Reserve officials have been tightening, and we have to remind everybody that their policy uh, acts with a lag. So is it possible... (laughs) We've already passed the point of uh, uh, where the policy starts to take effect, and maybe there's an indication that the Federal Reserve officials have gone too far. Given how long they've been raising rates now, they started in March, but they were obviously signaling rate hikes even before then, which worked its way into longer-term interest rates. We haven't really seen that uh, showing up in the economic data yet. Economists would expect it to start showing up around now. And so the big question going forward is, do we start to see that having an effect? Or is it possible that the economy is just, for whatever reason, less sensitive to interest rates than it used to be? One big thing that did happen during the pandemic is all of the money that the government pumped into the economy allowed a lot of people to pay down debt. And so maybe... Uh, you know, consumers and businesses are just not as interest sensitive as they used to be. In that case, the Fed may have to raise rates higher in order to gain traction and, and really start to slow things down. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks for explaining things. Bloomberg reporter Matt Mosler. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, some big weeks coming for China's economy and the political scene there. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead of the top stories from investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, 
Here comes the World Aviation Festival in Amsterdam. But first, China's economy and political leadership in focus this coming week. And for more, let's head to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis. John, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be taking a close look at the Communist Party Congress in China coming up later this month. In this segment, we'll focus on two specific areas. One, a possible overhaul of the Chinese economy. And secondly, future leaders, including who might eventually succeed Xi Jinping as Secretary General. We have Premier Li Keqiang, as well as the economic czar Liu He, PBOC Governor Yi Gang, and others likely to step down early next year. Now, that's based on retirement age and term limits for senior officials. New leadership might lead to new direction, though President Xi himself is expected to secure a third term as party chief. Joining us for discussion is Marvin Chen, China and North Asia equity strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, and Crystal Chia, who's China assignment reporter on finance at Bloomberg News. So Marvin, let's go to you first. Plenty of big issues to be discussed at the Congress. Uh, confidence is low among both households and businesses. And of course, there's a certain degree of external attention with, with the West. We spoke earlier with Leland Miller, CEO at China Beige Book, and he told us China is actually facing increasing risks from deflation. We're not in deflation yet, but, you know, we're heading into the winter. And a lot of people think, oh, this will bring economic stimulus after the party Congress. It'll bring an end to COVID zero lockdowns. I don't think that's the case. And moreover, if you have more COVID and more COVID zero lockdowns, you're really going to have a, a problem with, with, with the threat of deflation looming. So again, Leland Miller there, China Beige Book. So Marvin, what might we expect on COVID policy out of the Congress? Yeah, thank you, Brian. Well, First, I just want to emphasize that the 20th Party Congress is uh, largely a political event, so we shouldn't expect any immediately policy changes coming from the Congress, but we can get signals on the policy direction in the coming months uh, once the leadership transition is in place. For COVID, um, you know, cases have been coming down in recent weeks, and the last major city, Chengdu, that was under lockdown, is now reopening. So the Congress could be an opportune time for the party to declare a small victory and the effectiveness of the current uh, COVID policies. But we think the changes will be gradual, perhaps another reduction in the inbound quarantine requirements, and the gradual reduction may be similar to what we saw in Hong Kong. But the semi-lockdowns, uh, when cases rise, may still be looming and uh, lasting into 2023. Is there a sense that Hong Kong might be an experiment that they're watching to see how it might be applied to China? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Hong Kong uh, will be closely watched, uh, uh, how the reopening of Hong Kong affects cases. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we think that the Hong Kong reopening is uh, more significant because they want to keep Hong Kong as an international finance hub. As you mentioned, the Party Congress will deal with leadership issues. I'm just curious, uh, who might be tapped to become the next premier? Um, well, uh, I mean, we, we do know that Li Keqiang is going to retire, but, uh, you know, there's uh, speculation on uh, a few uh, uh, names. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, go yeah, into I mean, it's hard to speculate and guess, yeah. but is Liu He's name uh, perhaps in that circle? We think uh, Liu He is reaching the retirement age, and he, he may, be, may be stepping down. 
And so no exemption made on that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about housing. I know that it's not so much economic policy, but this is a, this is a story that runs right through society in China. Uh, are we expected to see some measures, at least in the next month or two, to shore up housing? Yeah, there's not going to be a quick fix to China's property issues at the moment, and it'll, it'll take some time to restore the market sentiment. Many of these measures will be uh, will vary from city to city and left up to local uh, government discretion. Okay, for part two in our discussion, we wanted to talk a little bit about future leadership. You heard me mention that. We know that elites will take up the key leadership positions, but there's another group that will also advance, and these are being called the luckiest generation. They were born back in the 1970s. They missed both the chaotic era of Mao Zedong, particularly toward the end. They got their education and grounding before the troubles of this most recent period. They had a brief window of internet freedom, WTO membership, and all that that meant, as well as global mobility. And those freedoms have now been somewhat restricted by censorship, trade actions, and COVID border closure. Let's bring in Crystal for a little bit of insight on this wonderful story. So give us one name, Crystal, that you think kind of stands out as a future high flyer. Mm -hmm. So I think arguably the most high-profile leader in this cohort of politicians born in the 1970s. Um, it's de the Deputy Party Secretary in Shanghai. His name is Zhuge Yujie. So he's been known as a right-hand man to the current Shanghai party chief Li Tiang, who is a long-time associate of President Xi. And the financial hub of Shanghai is traditionally a springboard to higher office. Xi Jinping himself is a former Shanghai party secretary. Many political observers have noticed Zhu Guizhi as one of the most promising younger politicians who was born in the 1970s. And broadly speaking, why is this generation important? So it's likely that Xi Jinping's successor will emerge from this generation. They will rise to power just as he gets very, very old. So current age limits and norms mean that those born in the 1960s will have to retire over the next decade. So that would clear a path for those born in the 1970s to join the Politburo. So the idea and the logic is that they would first join um, the Central Committee this month as alternate members, become full members in the next Congress, and then rise to the Politburo in the 2032 Congress. I'm also curious about whether or not these leaders will be more globalist in nature. I mean, might they be looking externally as much as internally for the development of China? One thing that stands out from the shared experience of this cohort of politicians born in the 1970s is that they have witnessed and in fact experienced the benefits of China's startling economic rise. So that gives rise to two arguments. One is that because that they have enjoyed these benefits and that they have had a possibly a more international education, so they will open up China at just potentially the right time. On the other hand, we could also argue that because they have only experienced the so-called good times, it is much easier for them to internalize the idea that the party enriches society and that would um, help them to enforce the status quo. Hmm. Yeah, so a lot needs to unfold over the next many years. Crystal, thanks so much for joining us. Crystal Chia. China Assignment Reporter on Finance at Bloomberg News. And Marvin Chen, thank you as well. China and North Asia Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? 
All right, Brian, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the High Flying World Aviation Festival in Amsterdam. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. The World Aviation Festival happens next week in Amsterdam. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. John, soaring dollar-denominated fuel costs, a chaotic post-COVID summer travel season and sustainable aviation. The airline industry certainly has some challenges. Joining me now is Bloomberg anchor Guy Johnson, who is off to Amsterdam then in the coming few days. Well, we hope you're going to be off to Amsterdam. Um, What is the biggest issue then in your view for the industry? Is it production? Is it the passenger numbers? Fuel costs? What do you think? It's all of the, uh, Caroline, it's all of the above. Mm. Um, This is an industry that that shut down during the pandemic, which was unprecedented. It has then had to completely readjust to a summer that has been much stronger than anticipated. The capacity has not been there. We've all read the stories about the chaos that has ensued as a result of that. Uh, It has been uh, a European problem. It's been a problem over in the United States. It's been a problem down in Australia. All of the airlines have been suffering from uh, this same issue. But But the challenge now comes in as much as They've they've ramped up capacity once again to meet this demand, but we're now we're going into a cost of living crisis. A lot of people booked their summer leisure trips as they came out of the pandemic. Let me go anywhere. I don't care where. I just want to go on holiday. But now energy prices are rising. Mortgage costs are rising. Are people going to continue to book? And if they're not going to book, will business travel make up the gap? Yeah, I mean, I was reading just the other day, I don't know whether you've seen this, the October half term here in the UK where people might go and grab some summer sun. Apparently, airline ticket prices have gone up something like 40% for for travel to places like Tenerife and elsewhere. Look, you cover all the kind of global aviation industry shindigs. What do you think the atmosphere is actually going to be like then? Sort of paint us a picture. And really importantly, who are you going to be speaking to for Bloomberg TV and radio? I think it's going to be cautious. So if you're an airline boss, you are... From a DNA point of view, an optimistic person, you have to be. If you want to run an airline, Mm -hmm. you have got to be an optimistic person. But I would say even the most optimistic airline CEO at the moment is probably feeling fairly cautious. Um, There's a lot going on. There's a lot of uh, known unknowns that they have to deal with. So, So I think there will be certainly a note of caution. We're going to be speaking to um, a whole range of carriers from around the world. And that's what's great about these things. Um, Airline CEOs are actually prepared to get on an airplane and come to these kinds of events. So we've got Willie Walsh is going to be there. He'll give us the sort of top down picture from IATA. That's the industry body. We're being hosted by the uh, the new KLM CEO. Um, There aren't many female CEOs in this industry. Mm. So it's great that she is she is kind of hosting this event uh, effectively for us. She's just been uh, in the job for 100 days. It's going to be really interesting to get her take, Marianne Riddle, of, of what is happening 
with the airline. Then we've got uh, some of the big kind of global carriers. Sir Tim Clark is going to be there from Emirates. It'll be interesting to get his take. Uh, he has a, a pretty global picture of, of what is going on. Uh, Qantas's CEO, Alan Joyce, is going to be okay. there. So you're getting, you're getting the kind of the whole range. Um, and I think, actually, I'm quite curious to hear from, from some of the long-haul carriers because you mentioned Tenerife. I think that's quite interesting. People are shortening the length they're going to be prepared to fly for winter sun. And it's going to be interesting. You, you mentioned Tenerife. Tenerife has quite good winter sun. Mm-hmm. But normally people would be going to Australia. They'd be going to the Caribbean. They'd be going to quite far-flung places to reach that winter sun. My understanding is that they're going to be flying shorter distances to get that little uh, that little ray of sunshine. <laughs> there you go. You can you can tell that I was looking it up on the yeah. <laughs> on the internet, can't you? What, what the October prices were looking like. Look, interesting that you mentioned IATA and great stuff. Really excited to hear about all the CEOs that you're going to be able to listen to on on radio and of course watch on TV. Um, IATA says that they are optimistic that governments will sign up to the target of net zero emissions for the sector by 2050. There's a critical meeting coming up in yeah. Canada. Decarb decarbonisation, the road to decarbonisation for these airline industries? It's really challenging. It is It is a huge challenge. It's interesting, EasyJet has just moved away from its offset scheme, which mm. didn't work. So they're trying all kinds of different things, trying to make this work. The biggest the biggest thing that, that the industry needs from governments is a policy pledge to make sustainable aviation fuel in quantities. So that needs, that needs a tax um, reset to be able to allow that to happen. Joe Biden, just over in the United States, has started down this down this road. It's going to be interesting to hear from Qantas. They're very keen for the Australian government to to actually step in and deliver significant policy uh, around this kind of area that will allow the sustainable aviation industry to grow. Guy, thanks so much for being with us. Wishing you all the best of luck. We'll be tuning yeah. in, of course, to get all of those CEO interviews from uh, the World Aviation Festival that takes place in the coming days in Amsterdam. Thanks so much to Guy Johnson. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. John. Caroline, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, watch for more mudslinging as the midterm elections near. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. The midterm election season shifting into high gear this coming week with the November 8th elections getting closer. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Thank you, John. President Biden has been ramping up the rhetoric as the midterms near and he steps up the campaign appearances and other public speeches. You can't claim to be a party of law and order and call the people who attacked the police on January 6th patriots. Now, as President Biden and other Democrats continue to try to use issues surrounding January 6th to their advantage, Republicans are trying to use a lot of hot-button issues as well to their advantage. One of the issues they may try to turn to their political advantage, the January 6th riots, including some people who are actually there. We talk about this now. Bloomberg political reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith. Ryan, it is a pleasure, as always. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. So former President Trump has not yet announced his bid for the White House, but he has been pushing back at President Biden's claims of success. Uh, Here is the former president now at a rally in Ohio just recently. It's been one of the worst years for stocks in history. How are your 401ks doing? Not too good. 
All right. So, Ryan, how powerful an argument is this for Republicans? Is this something that can maybe move the needle or sway independence? You know, I've never really understood Trump's focus on 401ks because a lot of the people who really vote based on the economy don't have 401k. Um, I think the broader point here is how is employment doing? How is inflation doing? And so I think that the broader argument there about the economy is is in still probably in the Republicans, uh, you know, on their ledger on the positive side, uh, giving them a boost. Um, I think that there's a question, a real open question of how much uh, other issues like abortion may uh, counter be countervailing forces there for Democrats this time around. But I, I still feel like the economy is just is too uncertain and uh, for it to be a, uh, a boost to Biden at this point. So we're coming up now on a busy week at the Supreme Court, shifting gears just a bit. The political world still reverberating from the rollback of abortion rights. If the economy isn't necessarily going to move the needle for everyone, how is the abortion issue going to play out for the GOP specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a long, for a long time, there was an advantage here for Republicans in that the status quo was sort of assumed by supporters of abortion rights to be, uh, you know, not changing. And uh, if you're a Republican, you could uh, go out there and campaign on how you were going to cut abortion or you were going to, uh, you know, things like partial birth abortion or parent notifications or things like that, where they could kind of find these wedge issues that would sway a number of people. Since the Dobbs decision, we've really seen like a reversal in the polls. There's a lot more people who are concerned about this who are abortion rights voters than opponents. And there's a lot of people who say in the past would have said that they were pro-life and now are saying, but, you know, I would sort of like the the standard that there was during Roe versus Wade to be what the law. I do think that that is a factor. I don't know how much of a factor. I mean, it could be a thing where it cuts into the Republican margin, but not enough to prevent Republicans from prevailing in the House and picking up some Senate. So it could be a factor, but not enough of a factor. Or it could completely change the electorate. I mean, we we have seen some evidence that voter registrations among young women especially are unusually high. It's a real hard one to pull. It's a real hard midterm to pull. I don't think we've seen one like this. The other flip side of that coin is that maybe people who supported Republicans or who supported Donald Trump before aren't as motivated to go to the polls because abortion perhaps was their wedge issue. And now it has been resolved. The Supreme Court has had that handed down that decision. Right. It does drain a little bit of the energy there. And I think that you saw, like in 2016, Trump was very effectively able to get people back into his corner who were maybe skeptical of him, but were Republicans and were um, anti-abortion rights. Uh, Those folks were swayed kind of at the last minute by his argument that, like, you got to come home, you know, I can put justices on the Supreme Court. And that was basically a deal that he made with them. Having got those justices and not in like a 5-4 situation, but like feeling a pretty confident 6-3 conservative majority in the Supreme Court, like, I think that really becomes much less of an effective argument if there are other things that are sort of depressing them or keeping them from wanting to turn out. You had mentioned, Ryan, that this particular midterm is hard to pull. Why is that? What is the perfect storm that we're witnessing that makes this one so unusual? You know, there is just a, there is, you could do a whole hour on what's (laughs) up with polling lately. And the real problem with polling is not so much 
figuring out what people think because we can easily poll and tell you what what people think. Um, the problem is whether those are the people who are going to show up to vote. And it's it, pollsters have different ways of doing this. Sometimes they will just poll people that they know voted in previous elections. Sometimes they'll ask people, did you vote? Of course, you know, everyone says, yeah, I voted because no one wants to say that they're like a bad citizen. Um, or, you know, they may say, do you intend to vote? You know, if the election were held today, how would you vote? And the problem is those are all very inexact. And there's also some noise in the data. It, it appears that maybe some Trump supporters have just grown so skeptical of institutions in general that they don't respond to polls or that they don't tell pollsters that they're going to vote. Or maybe just that they're off the grid enough that it's hard to get a hold of them and so they're not being captured by that. So we do see that there's some potential here that the polls are understating Republicans in showing Democrats ahead in some of these Senate races. And we may wake up the day after the election and find that Republicans actually did quite well in those races that they were forecast to lose, like in Georgia and uh, Pennsylvania. Or... You know, it, it uh, may not be the case, and we may find that there's another group of people that we've missed, like young women that were, uh, you know, undersampling. So I uh, I really take polls with much more salt than uh, your doctor would recommend right now. Well, we are talking with Bloomberg political reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith about the unusual nature of this midterm election. Ryan, let's shift gears a bit. To Pennsylvania, Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman was at a rally this past week, and he promised to codify Roe v. Wade if the state sends him to Washington. My name is John Fetterwoman! His Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, has agreed to release his medical records. He also continues to pressure Fetterman to release his following that stroke that Fetterman had back in May. I don't know if he's medically fit, although I'm a doctor and I probably should have an opinion on it. But the fact is that nobody knows because none of us have had access to his medical records. And frankly, that's his decision, what records he wants to provide. Okay, so Ryan, where do we stand on this race and what are you looking for as far as the two of them in the coming weeks? Okay, now I am one of those people who will tell you that debate do not matter. Um, everyone always gets all excited about debates and makes a big deal about debates. Um, and generally speaking, like most debates, don't really have an effect. There's a handful of cases that you could point to where they did. This is one of those, I think. If if Fetterman and Oz meet in a debate and Fetterman is able to put on a pretty normal performance for a politician, then I think that that will put to bed the questions about uh, you know his uh, stroke and whether he's up for the job. Uh, if if he has a halting performance or if he has a moment on stage or he appears lost or isn't able to parry effectively an attack, then I think those uh, medical concerns could really be forefronted by that. Uh, so there's a lot at stake in the two of them meeting at a debate. And, and Oz is a very smart guy and a very uh, quick guy. And I think this would also be an opportunity for him He's been really flat-footed on on social media and uh, in some of his remarks and interviews and things like that. If if he can manage to get through a, a debate without saying something about crudités or, or <laughs> you know, some of the things that he said that where he's sort of trying to attack Fetterman and ends up making him sound cool, uh, then I think 
uh, that would also could actually move the needle a little bit. It, it's a very close race, much closer than I think Democrats were hoping it would be at this point. Speaking of moving the needle, will immigration issues, border issues move the needle? It seems to be getting more intense by the day. Where's the traction when it comes to immigration? I don't see that it necessarily is enough of a, a crisis to to become like an issue for swing voters or depressed Democrats on the issue or something like that. And, and there's some reason to believe that, that the excessive focus on immigration in 2016 versus 2020 when it really wasn't an issue is why Donald Trump did better in 2020 among Hispanics than he did in 2016. It, it, it may be that there's a cost to talking about immigration because the way that Republicans talk about it tends to turn off some people. The other reason why this is a weird midterm is that it does feel like there's like two separate elections going on where Republicans are kind of over in this corner talking about immigration and inflation and crime, and Democrats are over in this corner talking about abortion rights and you know, Biden's record and drug prescription drug prices and whatnot. And and the public seems to be kind of in those two universes, too. Like, there's, this isn't really a thing where there's an issue and each side says, you know, here's what I do about it. It's like each side has kind of its own set of issues. And I think that's the other thing is that it's hard to know which of those are motivating enough to get the, the turnout. Okay, we're going to keep watching it with you, Ryan. Thank you so much. Bloomberg political correspondent Ryan Teague-Beckwith. And that's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, tune in to Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and sound on with Joe Matthew weekday afternoons at 5 right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Thanks, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.